Hello and welcome once again to episode 89 of Code Completion. We are a group of iOS developers and educators hoping to share what we love most about development, Apple technology, and completing your code. My name is Dimitri and I'll be your host once again for this episode and I'm joined today by my fellow completionist, Spencer. Hey there. So we are back with more WWDC stuff. It will never end until we get through all of it. Um, but this time uh, we figured we would go through uh, what's new in Swift and... It turns out there's a lot of new things in Swift, uh, which we uh, mostly realized just by like going through the list. Um, mm-hmm. So uh, if you are interested, Apple has a changelog on the Swift repo on GitHub that just lists everything. So we're basically going to go through that um, and give you our uh, supreme commentary on what you can <laughs> ignore and what, what is useful. Um, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, it's all useful, uh, but there's there's a lot of nuance to a lot of the things, so uh, what better time to discuss them? Um, I don't think we're going to stay a whole, like, put a whole lot of concentration on each individual item, um, but there are some that are definitely, like, more uh, interesting than others, so, yeah. Yeah. So, before we begin, like Dimitri said, in that, in that change log, um, it's very cool because it has links to every proposal, so... If you like, it has a pretty good write up of, um, you know, like generally some code examples and kind of walking through the changes. But I think we've talked about this before. If you want like a larger discussion, you can actually go to the proposal itself and actually kind of see uh, the conversation of, you know, basically the process of getting uh, whatever the proposal is into Swift and kind of get a little bit of a larger. context i suppose for you know the reasoning behind things or whatever so um, yeah that's like the de facto documentation <laughs> a lot pretty of pretty much yeah like uh many times you might like go check for code documentation there's not really anything that explains uh what's the, like why these things are here um and this becomes that documentation um so it's not ideal in that it's not like part of the documentation but uh, it is documented and um as long as like the proposals aren't like changed over time, meaning like new things aren't added to them, you're not like out of date. Uh, so that that's a good part of uh, this whole system is you get some motivation into things that you previously would never have had motiv- like motivated reasoning like written down for other frameworks like SwiftUI or um, other internal frameworks. Right. It's nice that it's all out in the open. Mm-hmm. Um. Okay. So let's begin. I'll I'll start with the first one, and uh, immediately I'm going to ask Demetri a question because I don't understand why it exists. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> so, um, it is opaque. Ty- uh, so sorry, opaque types expressed with some, like some view, for example, uh, can now be used in structural positions within a result type, including having multiple opaque types in the same result. So in the example, it has. Uh, a function that returns a dictionary where the key is some hashable and the value is some codable. And my first thought is, why do we need that there? If oh, is it just oh, never mind. I think I just answered my own question. You couldn't put something that's you couldn't put just the protocol hashable and codable there, right? It would not. It would yell at you for just having those uh, the protocols yeah. themselves as the values. Yeah, so it's it's worth talking a tiny bit about protocols, just so that way we can contextualize a ton of these proposals. Um, protocols are kind of not optimal uh, in Swift. So Swift likes to leverage the compiler to figure out 
exactly what type should be where. Um, mm-hmm. And then it doesn't have to necessarily encode type information uh, along with that type. So, for instance, even though int is like a high-level type in Swift, it still only takes up four bytes. It doesn't need to take up additional like storage and memory to say, hey, I'm an int, here's my data. And then if you have an array of these, it's, hey, I'm an int, here's my data. Hey, I'm an int, here's my data. Hey, I'm an int, here's my data. None of that information needs to be encoded. In fact, the array doesn't even need to be encoded as being an array of ints. It can just be an array of four-byte data. Um, mm-hmm. And the code all knows what to do with this. So it can skip over a lot of these checks like, hey, is this an int at index 43? Um, and it can just go ahead and assume it is because the compiler did double-checking first. Now, protocols get in the way uh, because they can be used in two different ways. Uh, you can use them as generics, which basically uses exactly what I said. It says, hey, this function takes uh, a type that is a protocol, but because it is a generic function, uh, it can go ahead and be assumed to like be specialized to that, that type that ends up being used. Um, and what this means is that the compiler can basically say, hey, it looks like in this certain scenario, you're using this function uh, with its types as ints. So we're just going to like bake that in. Um, mm-hmm. So you're going to get a, a function that's as if it were written for ints rather than one that's written for anything. Um, so that's where protocols can be used. The other place protocols can be used is if you have like a, a uh, generic... Uh, interface that you want multiple types to be able to um, implement and then you want to store that somewhere as like a property for instance Uh, in that scenario something completely different happens we now need to encode at runtime what the type is and how to like work with it if it's a struct if it's a class all Mm -hmm. that needs to kind of be encoded so that way at runtime when you do something with that prop with that property that's a protocol of type of protocol uh, we can go ahead and do something. So that's co- what's called a boxed type. Um, and these boxed types, they're not exactly efficient because we have to now do multiple hops around, just like we were doing with Objective-C. So it's not less efficient than Objective-C, um, but it is less efficient than having a specialized type right from the get-go because all that can be- live on the stack and be super efficient. So uh, we are kind of moving away from a world where both of these uses of protocols can be ambiguous. Um, and instead, we're moving towards a world where it's very intentional which one is being used. So you either use some protocol for the more uh, generic case, mm. um, or you use any protocol for the boxed type. Um, and I think in Swift 6, the discussion is leaning towards moving away from the unqualified protocol name being a sum uh, or an any type, which is currently it is, um, towards a sum type. So if you don't put anything before the protocol, that's going to assume that it is uh, the sum type. So you're never accidentally Mm. introducing performance regressions just by using protocols without being truly aware of it. Okay. That's interesting. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, it does. That's cool. Um, So in the context of this, uh, where we have like that sum... Uh, that means that we are at compile time saying, hey, it's going to be a consistent, the same type. It's just all you know from the caller's point of view is that it's a hashable type. That's that's the difference. Gotcha. Okay, cool. That makes, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, 
Okay. <laughs> Ten minutes later. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's good, though. I mean, there's so much more depth. And, you know, it, as I was running through all of these um, these uh, things that are added to Swift 5.7, I just was thinking, you know, there's always that argument from people that, like, Swift is so much more complex than objective C. And it seems like every time there's a new version of Swift, I'm like, yep, yep. That makes more sense. That makes more sense. A uh, lot of just, you know, uh, I don't know how to explain it. It just seems very, I, this is all great because it's all ease of use things and it's making things that were um, impossible possible where the mm -hmm. compiler just wouldn't let you. But it is definitely adding, you know, levels of complexity every time that we do it. So I get that argument where before when I was uh, less versed in, in actually really both Swift and Objective-C, I was like, no, Swift is definitely easier. But as you get into these lower level things, it's like, no, not really. <laughs> if you want to master it, then no, definitely not. Well, the, well, that's what a lot of these changes aim to like fix about the language is most of the difficulties people have with Swift are with generics and protocols because mm -hmm. they are kind of overloaded on top of each other. And you have these mixed identities uh, that are named the same thing, but are very different under the hood. So by giving a qualification, a name to each of these, um, it could definitely help people better understand what's going on. And if yeah. people better understand something, then it's less complicated as a result, right? That makes sense. Um, so, yeah, along with a lot of these changes, we now get warnings and uh, help along the way, basically telling us that um, a lot of protocol conformances that we just thought we could take for granted um, are no longer actually uh, as, rid as like foolproof as we thought. Um, and the system will now go ahead and tell you, hey, uh, this might not work the way you think it works. Um, and that might, people might complain and saying, hey, Swift 5.7 made things more complicated because now I have all these warnings. You were uh -huh. using it incorrectly up until that point. Um, so that's, that's what it's warning you about. So uh, definitely uh, open up your project in Xcode 14 and give a lot of uh, these... Um, <laughs> warnings i guess a go just to kind of yeah. see like what kind of assumptions you're making are just flat out wrong um and fix them along the way because they a lot of them will work with x 13 so do double check but um that can help you have more correct code um with less headache and hair pulling later when uh, you realize that there's actually a bug with something that you didn't think would be a bug mm-hmm uh, opaque types can now be used in the parameters of functions and subscripts when they provide a shorthand syntax for the introduction of the generic parameter. So, um, there, I think this is one of them. I could be wrong there. Uh, again, it's a blur. There's so many of these things that have to do with generics and stuff, but it seems like a, a fair amount of these, um, generic uh, the, uh, proposals that involve generics are, uh, making, uh, I think mostly functions, maybe classes and or types as well, uh, a little bit more easy to read where there are like, you don't have to put like type constraints, like the where clause in an extension or something kind of cleans mm -hmm. things up. So in this case, it makes it so that you don't actually have to use the angle bracket syntax to uh, specify, you know, like 
in this case, it's talking about views, the Swift UI views. And so it's like V1 of type view, comma, V2 of type view in angle brackets. And instead, you can just put V, you know, V1 as the name, the argument name, and then some view. And you don't even have to deal with uh, sort of generics in the sense of, you know, making uh, your own generic types, I suppose. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that cleans up once again, like a lot of, uh, everyone's ability to write generic code because again it's intimidating it's like but do i yeah. need a where uh, as soon as you start questioning <laughs> yourself do i need a where in swift it's like well how does how does where work it's not really documented anywhere uh you just gotta know and see it by example and uh, f uh like uh flubber no flunder your way through I i'm i'm flounder. forgetting the word flounder your way through yeah uh like a fish <laughs> out of water um yes. Uh, that is me right now. Um, <laughs> the English language that I am native in. Um, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it, it makes it a lot easier to write many of these functions because you don't need to remember the generic syntax for things anymore. You just need to know mm -hmm. that, hey, sum is a specific but unmentioned protocol, like, like type, um, that, um, uh, conforms to that protocol. And any is a boxed version of that type where it can truly be anything um so some really makes that more clear and we've been using it in swift ui this whole time whenever you return some view you know that anything in the body has to return the same type of view um that's mm -hmm. what that sum means uh so this really goes from the other point of view so whoever's calling it has to, well it doesn't need to guarantee very much it just has to say like hey i'm always going to call you with the same view um but whoever's implementing the function can basically not care about that and just use it because all they care about is it is a view. Mm -hmm. The next one is called distributed actor isolation. So this one is really, really cool. Um, and basically harpens back to what I think Next Step uh, had uh, as a basic ability to have objects live on different machines. So you could basically say, hey, this is a distributed object and uh, it doesn't, all I have on my computer is the metadata of that object. But if I wanted to ask anything of it, a property or for it to do something, all I would be doing is sending a message to a different machine and that mm -hmm. other machine will go ahead and do the work. Um, so this was a very interesting way of having distributed computing, meaning you don't have to have a server uh, necessarily, you can just do peer to peer, um, and you don't have to have an API necessarily for those things to communicate. All you have to do is imagine that that computer over there is just a different core on your computer over here. Um, and then you can go ahead and use everything, uh, as if it were local, just separate, um, which is what we're kind of used to doing whenever we're doing parallel programming and stuff like that. So, uh, distributed actors take that notion uh, to Swift, but bring it in via not only a type safe way, but potentially a um, execution context safe way. Meaning, since an actor is like an isolated unit, it's an atomic thing that only operates on itself, a distributed actor is one of those actors just somewhere else. So the asynchronous nature of Swift really lends itself very well to this kind of notion where you can ask a, an actor to do something, and if that actor's on a different core, that's fine. If it's on a different mm -hmm. machine, that's also fine. Um, that's what the distributed part means, basically. Um, so 
what landed in Swift is just the narrowly being able to prefix actors with this distributed keyword. Um, and you can also uh, uh, mark functions as distributed, meaning there are some functions that can actually run locally and there are some uh, that will need to uh, fetch uh, data or communicate to a different machine or computer to do. And that's where you put the distributed in. Um, there's a separate proposal for the actual runtime and all that. And that's like still in the works. Uh, so, uh, it's just the baby steps of getting this going. Um, and once we have it, uh, the promise is that you can just pick a library and that library will go ahead and give you all the functionality of connecting your two machines. And then all you have to do on your, for your code is just write your, write your code with actors and you'll be able to communicate between two machines. They're, the WWDC session was uh, using a tic-tac-toe game as an example of this, um, but it's not limited to games. Anything that mm-hmm. you have to have two commuters communicate, whether that is a server and a client or a peer-to-peer client-client, um, all of that becomes possible and very straightforward with actors. Um, so if you can build out a system with actors, the only change you need to make is add distributed to that and have a communication mechanism where it actually can talk to another server and it seems like uh the authors for this um proposal are already writing a few reference implementations for that communication aspect like you can write your own or you can use one of these um and that will go ahead and get you set up because apple can't make assumptions about how you actually want to communicate with your servers which objective c did make assumptions and said oh well it's happening like this um and then if you didn't want to happen like that you can write your own but it was like way complicated so uh and not documented um so this is an improvement there nice yeah that's cool uh i think for me for my limited understanding of this is it's cool that um you know if it's like local then it just you know it's just a waiting it's just a sync so you know it could happen very quickly or if it needs to go to a server i mean to your code there's no difference really so Mm -hmm. just kind of all behind the scenes or done behind the scenes so that's cool yeah um all right the next one top level scripts support asynchronous calls so uh, I didn't know this was a thing, but like if you had like the main uh, .swift and you were trying to call something asynchronous in main, uh, it wouldn't work or or something like that. I was yeah, you would have to make a task. On it. Yeah, so uh, I think it's just allowing that um, kind of at the at the highest level, allowing async await. Am I missing anything? No, that's basically it. And the the way this bit me personally many times is whenever I try to mess around with async await in a playground, which is a place that you might want to mm. uh, learn about these new things. Uh, and I'm like, why can't I? Oh, I just kind of make a task. And then your whole Swift file is a task. Um, so uh, yeah, this, this gets rid of that. And that's nice. <laughs> nice. That's cool. Um, yeah. Another one that's, that is, I think really cool is, uh, explicitly allowing you to not use something or let's see, how would I say this? Uh, well, I'll just read it. <laughs> um, it's now possible to make declarations unavailable from use in asynchronous context with the at unavailable, no, no async attribute. So, um, if you specifically want to make something not available in an async context, then you can just mark it and it will not allow you, um, Paul Hudson in his uh, kind of write-up had a good point where uh, this is a good first step, but it doesn't actually completely protect you. Like you can kind of get around it by 
um, I can't remember exactly how I did it, but you sort of obfuscate it like one or two layers, and then it is actually still possible to kind of uh, asynchronously call uh, this function, even if you've marked it as no async, but um, it does disallow sort of a, a direct call, I suppose, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. so. it's, a, it's a compiler helping hand for documentation that says this is not thread safe. So you can uh, wrap it in a call, but it's still going to blow up in your face. Um, so, yeah, be careful there. Um, this is a cool one. I think, well, I, we in our Slack group talked about this a while ago where um, it's now possible to unwrap optional variables with sort of a new shorthand syntax where 99% of the time we're just unwrapping something saying like if let foo equals foo with the new variable name as the same as the thing you're trying to unwrap. So now it's just if let foo, uh, and you don't have to do the equals whatever. Um, so that's nice, just shorthand. But uh, at first I was like, this feels weird. But now that I look at it, I'm like, that is actually really nice. I haven't used it in any uh, code, of course. I haven't even opened Xcode 14, um, but nice. I, I, I'll ask you, I'm sure you know, uh, does it also work with Guardlet? Yep. It works in okay. any let context, uh, basically, okay. or like conditional let context, um, and yeah, it's it's something that the community has uh, been very divided upon uh, mm -hmm. for the past, like basically when, since the if let uh, syntax was introduced in Swift one. Uh, so uh, at, the maintainers of Swift have for a long time said we don't think this is a good thing to do, uh, but. I don't know how many years in are we five, six, seven years in. Mm -hmm. uh, it's it's definitely worth considering now uh, that even after all this time, it's still something that people feel should just be part of the language, and um, it has kind of warranted itself some syntactic sugar to make it a little easier to type. Yeah, and there's nothing. I mean, if you don't want to use this, you can still write it out. I'm sure it's not gonna um, mm -hmm. not compile for you. So. But linters will <laughs> notoriously erase all the duplicate stuff. And that's that's like one thing I don't like about linters is because they will kind of just rewrite code whenever someone changes a rule. That makes a mess out of uh, any Git um, history that kind of tells you Ooh. like who did what, where. Um, and you can like say, oh, this commit should be ignored by the Git blame or Git authors uh, view. And then we'll just skip to the next one. Um, but like no one does that. So this like, that should be mandatory, uh, like reading for people who want to add linters is like, oh, you all should also like add these, uh, things. Otherwise the linter will just kind of cause chaos, uh, with history. And that's like the one useful thing about Git, uh, for most people is that history. So yeah, uh, I, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm a little divided on like what's going to happen because of this role. Hmm. Oh yeah, this is interesting, um, and I wanted to see if I understand this right. So uh, it has to do with closures. It's now possible to infer parameter and result types from the body of a multi-statement closure. Uh, the distinction between single and multi-statement closures has been removed. So uh, it was in a fairly recent version of Swift, uh, as I understand it, where you, if you opened up a closure with, or you, op you, you know, hit return on a closure function that has multiple closures it would like open them both. So is this saying it's getting rid of that kind of dual uh, functionality or am I? No, this is, this is completely different. So you'll oh, okay. know this 
from uh, Vapor and uh, server-side Swift programming, where if you have like chained futures, sometimes you need to specify what the return type is. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah. And this is, this is getting rid of that. Um, that's that's sweet. it. You don't use those anymore. So it's less True. of a, less of a, of a raring thing. But, uh, for even for simple things oh. like maps where you had something more complex where it wasn't clear what the result type could be. Like if you added a guard mm-hmm. like that, that's that. Um, you now need to specify a return type. Um, so this will basically verify that, Hey, all your return types are the same. And if they are, this is the type that your closures oh. are turning. So that, nice. that vastly simplifies things. So just better, I guess, type inference yeah. in general for, for mm-hmm. those closures. Okay, cool. That's awesome. Okay, yeah, more generic stuff. So it's now possible to use a default value expression with the generic parameter type to default the argument and its type. So this is cool where uh, if you have a function, uh, so in this one it has a function called compute. It's got a generic type of C uh, that is uh, of type collection or conforming to collection uh, and the values is an array of C uh, you know it's it is a collection uh, so in this example it has a default value of an array of 0 1 and 2 as integers so you can just give it some default value even though you know it, that's sort of an explicit type as I understand it and it's just cool with that even though you're kind of you're giving a default value to a parameter that is a generic, if that makes sense. Yeah. In the past, you would have had to have your generic function and then a uh, extension that defined the um, the version with the default value that called the generic function. Um, mm. So this simplifies all of that and allows you to do it in one in one go. Again, cleaning up the whole like mess that is generics and uh doing that well um because you might think oh like i'll i starting to get the hang of these generics and then as soon as you start wanting to use like default values it's like yelling in your face because it it doesn't know what to do with them but now it can yeah. now it can use the default value version which is ju- really just a different function under the hood um like we we know this we know this from objective c when you wanted to have default like stuff for your arguments you just made a different function without that argument um and that's right. your default version um so this this does the same thing uh, from the compiler's point of view but it synthesizes all that code for you uh which is really nice um all right next one it's now possible to call a generic function with the value of protocol type in places that would previously fail because any types do not conform to their protocols um yeah Yeah, i don't really understand this if i'm if i'm honest so this one is really really cool because it allows uh existential types which are protocols with associated types to be Mm -hmm. used in many many more contexts so in the past if you wanted to have a collection of ints but you didn't really care what type of collection it was it could have been a sequence or it could have been an array or a set does not really matter from your point of view you just want to iterate over it right mm-hmm. um you could not really store this anywhere you would have had to uh, use a special type called an any collection um of ints uh and that any collection is a is a struct um so that you can use but if you wanted to make an any collection, like if you look at the code for it, this is a crazy piece of code. You have a struct that has an internal box type, which is a class. 
And that internal box type has a subclass, which is specialized to a, like an array or a set or something. Like it doesn't really matter. But because it's a subclass of a class, you can hide that generic conformance inside of the box type and no one would be any wiser because that is all encoded mm. at runtime. Um, so you're just using the super class, which does not care, um, re-implements all the methods. So you end up with a ton of boilerplate to make something called a type erased, like, version of your existential protocol. Okay. This gets rid of almost all of that by just adding the any keyword. <laughs> that is nice. what is, like, okay. so amazing about this. So, uh, yeah, uh, highly recommend. So it's now possible to use the with memory rebound, uh, with a generic method on raw memory uh and their mutable counterparts so yeah fascinating yeah. <laughs> cool i don't ever touch uh, like memory or pointers very much so i had no idea when this would be useful or anything so well it's it's when you're dealing with memories and pointers it used to be more boilerplate and now it's less boilerplate so yay yeah. okay. i have not written any of code that like uses this i'm afraid of calling any c function uh, from Swift because there's like a whole bunch of other gotchas like oh uh, check error num and like check it quick because if you don't check it quick it might get overridden by like a stray re- release or something and it's like super fraught with all sorts of craziness so uh, yeah if you're using uh, very low level stuff uh, that deals with memory and unsafe uh, keywords uh, then this will make your life easier uh, if you don't use any of that stuff then this will be inconsequential to your uh day-to-day productivity sweet all right yeah um the next one also has to do with pointers so there's uh new functionality for pointer arithmetic on unsafe raw pointer and unsafe mutable raw pointer um adding functions to obtain a pointer advanced to the next or previous alignment boundary and i'm not sure what alignment boundaries are so i have no clue okay so so say you have a uh, struct and there are three int properties in it, okay? Mm-hmm. So this struct takes three um or three uh uint8 properties, okay? So they take one byte each. Uh yep. so this struct now has uh, three bytes. Um if you have an array of these structs, you're going to have three bytes for the first struct, three bytes for the next struct, three bytes for the next struct. Okay. Turns out this is super inefficient for computers to deal with because uh, computers don't actually refer to like an exact point in memory. They refer to an exact point in memory by word. Uh, and a word meaning uh, if it's a 32-bit processor, it jumps 32 bits at a time. Oh. If it's a 64-bit, it jumps 64 bits at a time. So it is possible to get at these unaligned uh, entries, but you need to jump to an aligned part and mm. then advance a little bit and like do some bit arithmetic. So that is inefficient. Um, So what the compiler will do for you is with your three byte struct, uh, it can do one of two things. It might keep it as three bytes and say like, hey, this is how you're going to access it. Or it might do something very different in that it will align each of your bytes, uh, your uint eights, which take one byte, to um, aligned areas in memory. So now your struct, instead of taking up three bytes in memory, it now takes up potentially 12 bytes in memory like four Mm -hmm. bytes or much worse it could take eight bytes each so it's 24 bytes total um because uh it wants to align things to 64 bits 
um, and so forth. So uh, where this comes to bite you is if you have a stream of data from the network, for instance, that is mm-hmm. unaligned because it's compressed as best as possible. Um, but if you convert that to um, like structs, that might become aligned just by nature of you building those structs and storing them in an array. Uh, so this allows you to jump through uh, those alignment boundaries very efficiently. Um, if you're in C and you like use indexes on your array, that will do that automatically. Whereas if you do pointer arithmetic with your array, that will not do it automatically. Um, so that's basically the difference. Um, so this gives Swift a lot of uh, aligned pointer arithmetic. And it also, I think in the very next uh, proposal, gives you unaligned pointer arithmetic, mm. if that makes sense. So it's, it's very explicit what you're trying to do. Um, much like dealing with, uh, if you've ever dealt with network data, you have big endian data and little mm-hmm. endian data. Um, and in most languages, it's unspecified what you're dealing with, which actually adds bugs because no one is paying attention to what uh, endianness anything is. So if you want to store anything to disk or if you want to send it over the network, you want to transform your integers into big endian um, variants before you save them or before you send them. And that will kind of be very explicit because you chose to do it in Big Endian, which means that everyone knows you're doing it in Big Endian. Um, mm-hmm. So you can always do that conversion back to Little Endian when you consume the data. Um, so kind of like that, this is also like being very explicit in your code. That's basically it. Maybe I'm not getting this right. When you you, you know you said it, it could potentially increase to like 24 bytes or whatever. Um, mm-hmm. Is it sort of like, um, are you increasing memory usage at the sort of benefit of increased performance? Or is it like you could interleave things within those? Uh, Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, it it might be garbage data. It might be zeros. It It really doesn't matter because that memory is never accessed. Um, But you are increasing performance at the... A cost of increased memory. Yeah, that's absolutely okay. it. Okay. All right. That makes a little more so, sense. So th- that's often why when you want to store things efficiently, you have an array of uint eights that will pack things. Um, but if you have uh, structs, uh, that might pack things within the struct. But then if you have multiple structs side by side, that will not be packed because those mm-hmm. will have to be on alignment boundaries. Um, so that's that's where all that comes in. It's kind of like thinking about bits. Right, you can't have three bits. You have to have eight bits. Right, it, it's always aligned to mm-hmm. uh, an, a multiple of eight. Um, so this is similar on the level of bytes. How those bytes get aligned? That's the, okay. the uh, quick way of explaining it. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Oh yeah. So yeah, like Dimitri said, the next one is just um, allowing unaligned accesses of raw, like raw pointers and un and um, yeah raw sorry unsafe raw pointers and unsafe raw buffer pointers so is that anything else to say about that no it's just super explicit and you don't need to like be left guessing is this going to be aligned is this going to be unaligned if i do pointer arithmetic um so this this allows you to not need to do pointer arithmetic which is the whole point of uh, memory safety um anytime you're like it's Reading a pointer as if it were just a number and then just using that to access memory is like super dangerous um, mm. because all sorts of things could go wrong. 
Uh, so it's still dangerous if you're using these unsafe types, but it's less dangerous because at least you know what's maybe going on rather than uh, not knowing platform to platform, uh, generation to generation, what can change. Okay. Okay, cool. Um, all right. The next one has to do with protocols again. Big surprise. Um, various protocols in the standard library now declare primary associated types. So, for example, sequence and collection declare a single uh, primary associated type element. Uh, for example, this uh, this allows writing down the types sum collection uh, angle brackets int and any collection angle brackets int. Yeah. So we mentioned this previously um, of like why why this is now possible it's because uh we now have these box types which are given to us by the the system mm -hmm. um but that's not enough to describe what kind of collection it is so we now need to have a way of specifying generics for a protocol and this is basically what that is so um it allows you instead of saying an array of ints you can now say a collection of ints and you don't care that it's an array it can be a array a set anything that's a collection um, and conveniently, all collections have an associated type. And if you have a protocol with associated types, you can now specify those associated types as, uh, what, what do they call them? Uh, lightweight, um, uh, yeah, I'm forgetting what they call them. Um, but it's generic? like a primary associated type, basically. So you declare those in angle brackets, just like you would a generic type that you write yourself. The next one is also with protocols. Uh, protocols with uh, sorry, primary associated types can now be used in existential types, enabling same type constraints on those associated types. It might be useful to take these out of order. So there's another one that's hmm. a little higher up in this list, which I think they kind of just copy-pasted all four of these as one block. Um, but if we jump to uh, Swift Evolution 0309... And this is unlock existentials for all protocols. This is kind of like the foundational step, and then everything kind of builds on that. So let's start with this one. Um, but it allows uh, any protocols with associated types um, and, or self requirements, um, and that's anytime you have like specify self with a capital mm -hmm. S. Uh, you can now use those with the any keyword. So. The any keyword was previously just introduced for regular non-existential protocols. And now for the, the existential ones that have associated types, you can now also use uh, the any keyword. So this allows you to skip that process of writing those boxed types that I was uh, mentioning before. Where you write a struct with a class and a subclass and a ton of boilerplate to link up all the functions uh, between there. This still writes all that but it synthesizes this code for you basically mm -hmm. gotcha so if we go down one um mm -hmm. protocols can now declare a list of one or more primary associated types which enable writing same type requirements on those associated types using that angle bracket syntax so is that just saying you can now actually use angle bracket syntax with those kind of uh generics Exactly. So okay. uh, with a protocol, you can now use angle bracket syntax in the type definition. Um, nice. And it allows you to say, hey, these are my primary associated types. Cool. Okay, so now uh, protocols with this primary associated types can now be used in ex existential types, enabling same type constraints on those associated types. Yeah. Oh, so okay. Linking it all up, basically. Okay. One yeah, yeah, yeah. One proposal at a time. Okay. Yep. 
that's that that's why it made no sense that this was like listed out of order in the document um so that's why i flipped them all around sorry for yeah. the confusion. no you're good i i wasn't reading the the notes so that's that's my bad oh yeah okay so this is super cool new types re- representing time and clocks were introduced so this is super cool it's kind of i it kind of just seems like almost a continuation of like calendar where it was for like dates uh we're just kind of going a little bit lower where now we've got time uh so the example that it gives is you've got like you want to sleep uh and instead of like dealing with i can't exactly remember what the um the type is i think it's a c type but you're dealing with like milliseconds right and now you nanoseconds have, <laughs> nano sorry nanoseconds um so now you're dealing with uh the clock types which you can do like dot milliseconds you could do dot seconds so it makes it a little bit easier for you to like reason about you don't have to put like you know 10 million for whatever that ends up being in in seconds or whatever so that's super cool yeah and um, and i think that's that's the motivation to do it right because if, yeah. I, if I say 10 million right now, how many, how many, uh, seconds is that, Spencer? Can you say it off yeah, the top? Yeah, I have of your no head? idea. No. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, so, like, no one knows how many nanoseconds are in a second. We are programmers. We are not mathematicians or physicists or, yeah. or any of that. Uh, we make UIs be pretty and go blink, blink. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> so, uh, this is a very welcome addition where it basically types time. Uh, so you can mm-hmm. say dot seconds to specify things, and that is nice. It also comes yeah. with two clocks, which I feel like we should uh, at least mention mm-hmm. to a tiny bit. Uh, so there is a continuous clock, which works like the clock on your wall, uh, where it's the, the accurate time. Uh, and then there is also a suspending clock. Uh, and the suspending clock is cool because it's the amount of time since your computer turned on, and it will never decrease by definition. Um, so if your computer sleeps for a little tiny bit, then it will like not notice that it slept. It's as if the computer was like on this whole time or on. And then it just like blinked out of existence, blinked into existence and is like still on. Uh, but it didn't notice how much time it was out of existence for. Uh, whereas the continuous clock will either a notice that and it will say like, Hey, 17 hours have passed. Or if Mm -hmm. the time has changed, um, by the user or by the system, uh, then it will go ahead and say, hey, negative 17 hours have passed since the time was corrected. So you'll be able to see these two things without necessarily using date, which um, is kind of like an overloaded class uh, or type that mentions both the the time on the calendar and the time within the day. Um, and if you use it to compare uh, values, you might get different like results because depending on if the computer slept, depending on if the computer's time was uh, fixed uh, in between and things like that. So in times where you were using CA media current time or whatever the core animation call is, that gives you that exact thing as a nice number of seconds. Uh, You don't need to use that anymore. You can now use a a, uh, suspending clock and that will give you the same information. Yeah, I was just going to mention it's like, there's like that CFD absolute time get current or something that I would always use mm-hmm. to like measure performance and stuff. And the last thing that's in kind of this summary for the proposal, and I'm sure the clock uh, classes have much more functionality, but there's just a measure method that is just a closure. You put your thing in there and it will give you how long uh, something took. And that's like, that's so cool. Just 
that one thing was like, all right, sweet. Uh, between that and the um, being able to just specify seconds or potentially hours or whatever you need, that's fantastic. So super cool addition there for sure. Um, mm -hmm. Anything else before we move on with that? Um, no, I mean, it's, it's easy to write your own benchmark too, because with benchmarks, you want to like calculate this multiple times. Uh, you just wrap a for loop around that and average your elapsed values. So yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Really good stuff. Um, what's not really good. I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> but not really, uh, is we talked about this last week is there are, we now have regular expression literals. Um, there's, I think, a maybe a few proposals um kind of in general that have to do with the regular expressions but um there's just a new type that is regex uh with whatever your output is um so yeah we talked about regular expressions i don't think we need to give them any more uh screen time the spotlight <laughs> yep <laughs> unless there's anything you want to add well, I, I just want to go ahead and say that the the part that's in the language so far is the regex type, um, and this uh, has like the generic uh, output that it understands. Um, mm. And there's different proposals for the other aspects of uh, regex, which we can get to in like five minutes. So, yeah, that's that's what's in and what's coming. Um, all right, so the last kind of big one that we have here, as far as I, I'm looking at the change log about Dimitri's notes. Yes, okay. Um, is non-isolated async functions now always execute on the global concurrent, global concurrent pool. So calling a non-isolated async function from actor isolated code will leap the actor. Um, and I'm sure Dimitri can expand on this a lot more, but my understanding of this is like, it allows it frees up the actor if it doesn't need to be run on the actor if that makes sense like if you yeah i don't know yeah uh long story short mistakes were made um and uh the actor system was kind of like made in isolation from all the ui system that everyone actually uses so as soon as people started using at main actor they were noticing hey the code I'm writing is not actually doing anything on an, any other queue. It's still running on the main actor, even though I awaited it. What's going on? Mm. Um, so this uh, kind of fixes that because if you start a task on the main actor, uh, it's not necessarily going to stay stuck to the main actor until you call into a separate actor. Any function that's uh, marked with uh, async can now execute on the con on a concurrent queue uh or pool as they call it because it's not queues anymore um and it will switch immediately away from the main actor to let the main actor start doing ui stuff again um and not be burdened by the work that you've explicitly said you want to wait anyways um so it will still switch back to the main actor for anything that is at main actored um but uh anything that isn't uh main actorized will uh be able to run on the concurrent queue now yeah, so it's a, it's a bit of cleanup uh, from from past mistakes. All right. Um, so then we've got a bunch that are in active review or coming real soon. And uh, is this, you mentioned something like they're in Xcode, but not actually as a part of Swift itself. Is that right? Kind of. So they're, they're bundled in the version of Swift that comes with Xcode 14. 
Um, they are still in active review, meaning they can change. Um, they're they're Ooh. very much beta. So everything we talked about so far is not beta. This is like Swift 5.7 uh, proper. Yep. Um, like a new proposal might come in to change things last minute. Fine. Uh, but they they have been discussed at length, and that's, this is what they're going to be. Um, anything active review can still change based on feedback. Um, and Apple is essentially collecting feedback during the beta period to uh, to get these uh, properly tuned uh, as you would for for live for prime time, whatever that term is. Blah, blah. Yeah. Um, so one is a regular expression builder DSL. So um, this one is awesome. Yeah, I mean, I think the cool part about this for me is, like, if I had to use regular expressions again, I think it would make things a little bit easier to understand. And that's kind of the big part there, where it's instead of just being, like, one gigantic gross string, um, it looks like, I mean, it's a DSL, right? So it looks a little bit more Swift UI-ish in the sense that uh, you've kind of, you can expand things out and make it a little bit easier to understand i suppose so mm-hmm. the, in the uh the proposal itself it has a pretty good example of you know uh i don't think it has like what it would be if it was just as a string but it you can look at the regular expression and be like oh yeah i can kind of understand what's going on here as opposed to being mm-hmm. like this is a garbled mess i have no clue what this means well let me read it out and see if you can guess uh, in the example, we are capturing zero or more words uh, with a period at the end of them, uh, mm-hmm. followed by a word. Uh, so we're capturing that whole thing. Uh, then right. we have an at symbol. And now we are capturing a word followed by one or more period and words combos. What could that be? Well, like if you were to write that out literally, it's just an email address. Email, like as yeah. simple as that. Um, it's there's no slashes and d's and brackets and dots uh, that don't mean dots. <laughs> yeah. Like regex. What were you thinking? Anyways, uh, this is like clearly spelled out. It's type checked. You have a email pattern that now has three like the things that it returns, which are substrings, which you explicitly captured, um, which is awesome. And yeah. Like, I am all for these new uh, Regex builders. I don't think they should have the the name Regex attached to them. They should just be, like, mm-hmm. pattern builders or something cool because they are way better than Regex. Um, I'm actually slightly uh, uh, jealous of this because I built something similar for async sequences to be able to consume a sequence of bytes. Um, and uh, this looks way nicer than what I put together. Uh, but I'm not sure... <laughs> What I put together is something that can like actually be rebuilt with something like this, so uh, it is something to consider. But yeah, this is like way nicer than than uh, uh, regexes, and yeah, we you should never write a regex again with this. Like this would instantly make everything more understandable for everyone else. Even if you understand regexes, no one else will, and you might forget. So yeah, don't use them. Yeah. Yep, and then the next one is just the actual literals. You could just write them as a, a literal instead. So I'd say yeah, these are ignore the, that the proposal. <laughs> yeah, ignore that proposal and just use the, the builder. <laughs> um, so, so one thing oh. with the literals, it's actually quite uh, harder than you might think to just introduce new literals to the language uh, because slashes are used everywhere, mm-hmm. right? You can divide things. You can have comments 
uh, is a comment uh, regex literal? Who knows? Uh, most You'll notice languages with regex don't necessarily use slash slash as their comment type. They use pound or something. Right. Uh, so that introduces some weirdness uh, with the language and some uh, cleanup that might need be necessary. So Swift 6, which is the language breaking or the syntax breaking language update that will come in the near 10 years whenever they decide to ship it. Um, <laughs> that one will basically like have uh, regexes built in and uh, robust support for them in terms of using the slash uh, syntax. Um, but up until then, all sorts of code and comments might break as a result of not mm. necessarily considering what a slash slash might do. Uh, or a slash followed by stuff and then another slash. Uh, so this is uh, something that the that the community has kind of discussed, and there is a uh, a new option called enable bear slash regex, which will enable it in Swift five point seven, um, but it will not uh, it will not enable it by default, which means that your code. Uh, it gives you a way of checking first before we migrate to Swift 6 if your code is problematic um, so that we can fix it now and have less of a hard time when Swift 6 launches. Does that make sense? Yeah. So this is But still don't how, use them. Well, yeah, this is how this proposal might impact you despite not using them. That's the, yeah, yeah, yeah. the long story That's short fair. there. Interesting to think about, though. I mean, we haven't had like a big breaking change since like Swift three, it seems like. Yeah, I mean, Swift five, Swift four basically oh. promised it would try its best not to break things, uh, mm-hmm. and Swift five like delivered on that promise. I would say maybe. Yeah, I don't it's know. So. It's been it's been a while. I feel like we've had a new two point releases of Swift a year for Swift five, mm-hmm. right? Like they come in pairs. You have one. Mm-hmm. Uh, early on, and you have one mid cycle that just like with Xcode fourteen point two would bring a new version of Swift, for instance. Um, so yeah, they've been doing a good job at not breaking code, and the recent new versions of Swift have only added warnings for things that you've been doing wrong this whole time, anyways. Uh, so that's that's very welcome. Yeah, yeah. The next one I don't understand. Uh, Regex pr- uh, powered string processing algorithms. Yay. I don't know what that means and I don't care. <laughs> so uh a lot of a lot of uh regular expressions require the ability to look ahead in a collection, but a lot of collections don't want to be looked ahead. They they kind of just Ooh. give you uh a static view, not a static view, a dynamic view uh into their their space, uh but they make no guarantees that that view is going to be unchanging or anything. Like if you go through it once, like you are expected to just go through it once and not necessarily like look back and refetch things. So this adds a whole bunch of missing pieces to um, collection types and string uh, to be able to use regular expressions effectively. Um, and uh, yeah, they, they are like general building blocks that can be used for all sorts of other things, but uh, regular expressions are the natural use case for many of them. Um, and one such example is being able to look ahead of your collection before you consume the collection, if that makes any mm-hmm. sense. Yeah. Yeah, no, it does. Uh, my question is, who is using all of these regular expressions? Well, clearly lots of people with uh, CV- CSV files. Um, yeah. 
Yeah. That said, All Apple right. has like a cool framework that's like macOS only. Um, is it macOS only? I don't know. It's it's on their platforms. It's not part of the Swift open source thing. Uh, called tabular data or something, and it allows you to consume like C- CSV files and stuff like that. So yeah, that's mm. that's a cool framework that you should check out if you're uh, thinking about using regular expressions. Just don't and use that. <laughs> Basically, we're we're trying so hard to like divert everyone away from regular expressions. I love it. <laughs> honestly Um, honestly they're not that bad as long as you use the builder dsl um and it looks like the literals like you can uh print them to the console and it will give you the builder dsl or something uh so like that was part of uh apple's grand plan to move everyone away from regular expressions as well so yeah i'm all for that yeah that's cool that they did that i just remember sitting there it's like regex101.com or something and i would just yeah you know, i was have the string the thing. and i would just like have to go through their you know like docs that are on that page and just mess around until i got the thing i was like i still don't understand this and i've spent hours and hours and hours on this so i just like have just this deep rooted uh abhorrence to regular expressions so uh, luckily mention, i haven't had to use them not to mention it's oh, like incomplete it. too like the email one that we gave in as, as an example is wrong. Like don't use that f- to check for emails because there are emails that just don't follow that at all. Uh, oh, like yeah. that they have oh. quotes and uh, spaces and all sorts of things. Like those are valid emails and your service will basically poo-poo that person's email. So uh, d- like a regular expression that understands email does not exist. Like a surprising like truth uh, that might shock you all. Uh, but if you go to any Stack Overflow answer, if it's a good answer, it will say, "Hey, there's no, there's no uh, regex that will satisfy any email uh, because emails are much more complex than you think." Um, so, yeah, uh, don't necessarily think that regexes are the be all end all of everything. Yeah, away distributed from regexes. Run- <laughs> yeah, yeah. Finally, <laughs> distributed actor runtime. With a recent introduction of actors to the language, Swift gained powerful and foundational building blocks for expressing thread-safe concurrent programs. Um, In distributed actor actor isolation, we took it a step further, guaranteeing complete isolation of state with distributed actor isolation and setting the stage for distributed method calls to be performed across processes and node boundaries. So is this just sort of the building blocks for allowing the distributed keyword? Or no, so, the, so the distributed keyword is part of the language. Uh, there is a protocol that you have to implement uh, to kind of get that going. And that protocol, I believe, is part of this proposal because they're not sure of like all the, the steps that are involved to actually get this working. So what Apple has been doing is they've been building uh, an open source package called the Swift Distributed Actors Library which is a reference implementation of a peer-to-peer cluster for distributed actors. So this is a high-performance um, library built on top of Swift Neo that will connect uh, a cluster of servers, basically, so that way they can all communicate together um, and they can all communicate instantly with message callbacks and things like that. So uh, mm-hmm. this is a reference implementation, but also a real in-use, in-production uh, implementation. They didn't specify where they're using it, but they are using it uh, because that is how they're learning about what parts are needed to make this system work. Um, so that's why this part of the protocol is still in review is because that work is still ongoing. 
Um, mm. and, uh, but it's still like, it, it is actually being used. So it's not like, uh, completely alpha code. It's, it's uh, de- very much in the beta, pro- uh, stage of things. And it will likely be finished by the end of the beta period for Xcode. Um, so definitely give it a, give it a look. If you want to build something, you can definitely build it on top of this. Um, the, you just have to follow along with any API changes that happen, uh, last minute, but with Swift packages, you can lock to a version like without any issue. So, um, as with most things in the beta period, everything changes, but, uh, it changes based on your feedback. So if you want to kind of go and give this a try and you have actual feedback, there are actual like Slack groups with the, the authors of this protocol there, um, where if you bring up something that seems like missing or truly broken, like they will highly consider it, um, during this time period and probably afterwards since it is an open source project. So, um, this is like the best of Apple building out in the open. Uh, so definitely take advantage of it. Yeah. Sweet. Um, this next one's pretty cool and, um, probably going to have to, well, definitely going to have to bounce off Dimitri to, um, make sure I understand this well, but in, in Paul Hudson's kind of write up of this, he, he explained that, you know, uh, like in Swift UI, for example, you can't have more than 10 views in a result builder. Um, and it looked like, and I like had just woken up when I had read this, so <laughs> I could be wrong. Um, but it looked like what they did was they literally implemented methods for um, taking in a single result and then two, then three, and all the way up to 10 results. And that's why it kind of just explicitly stops at uh, 10 results for a result builder. Uh, but it seems like, is that right so far? Is that yeah? Like they so just wrote ten methods. Yep, and that's why it's limited to ten because they stopped there. <laughs> they could continue, uh, but they didn't really want to. I guess with the new Swift package plugins, you can have it just synthesize a hundred. Um, that will probably be atrocious for compile times, but it can be done. Um, yeah. Gotcha. So in this, uh, so this is the actual new proposal. Here is. Uh, the ability to there's a build partial block for result builders so it seems like uh, as far as I understand it's just two results but you sort of combine those into one sort of result so in theory you could have as many uh, results in uh, yeah as you want if that makes sense I, I don't think I explained that well and so uh, I think the example they give is it works like reduce. So you take two things and you reduce them into one. Now that one thing is uh-huh. then passed into reduce again, and you take that uh-huh. thing plus a new thing, and then you reduce it into one. Uh, and then you pass it back into it again, and now you have that thing with three things and uh, one thing, and you combine it back into one. Uh, so you do this piecemeal. Um, and because mm-hmm. it's piecemeal, um, it can be done for any number of arguments it's essentially like a loop it's consuming it one by one um and then adding it to to a list uh an ever-growing list of of things um and this works because we have those generic protocols now where you have um you have like a some view and that can be any view really it doesn't really matter so it's just combining some view with some view um and mm-hmm. even though that first view is growing one view at a time into an ever larger uh, tuple um, or tuple of tuples of tuples of tuples because it's always like a group of one larger. Yeah. Um, thing Things uh, are much better. 
Now, uh, I think uh, Paul Hudson, I was about to call him Swift Hudson, uh, Paul Hudson, <laughs> um, uh, I think gave the example of if this were used in Swift UI, it would like make things way better. Um, in yeah. fact, it is being used in the Regex Builder DSL, so it's not necessarily being used in Swift UI yet. Um, but in regexes, it is, um, and that's that's like the 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 use case that they're using to build it at, this out. Um, mm-hmm. So that's really cool. So in theory, I think Paul Hudson said, like now in theory, SwiftUI could have more than ten results at once. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you so no longer have to if they group chose things. To implement it. Yeah. Um, cool. Th- this this reminds me actually uh, for the math nerds out there. Um, there's a th- there's um, a theory of math uh, called set theory, uh, and this basically defines all integers as uh, unions of sets. So, like, you have the empty set, which is nothing, but if you have a set of the empty set, that's zero. Zero is the set of the empty set. Now, one is the set of zero and the empty set. So, it's a set of a set and nothing. And then two is the set of one and the empty set. And you slowly build them one by one uh, like this. But you have to remember that every integer is itself a set. So you can like expand it however big you want. And um, it's a naturally progress- progressing sequence. Uh, and this very much reminds me of that because this is exactly what you end up with. You have a tuple of a tuple of a tuple um, at, like all the way down. Uh, and that's how you kind of represent all your views. So, yeah. Just wanted to throw that there. I failed so my math mapping classes, clients, by so. the way. Yeah, but, I also uh, did as well. They were, they, were, they were very fascinating, nonetheless. <laughs> yeah, I, I dropped out of my uh, math class my senior year. Because I didn't need the credit, so I just dropped the class and it was awesome. <laughs> uh, anyway, I kind of regret that now, but that's a story for a different day. You missed um, uh, out on all the set theory, Spencer. This would have made so much sense to you. <laughs> I know I would have been just reveling in in set three with you there, but alas. Um, okay, this is super cool. Swift snippets. Um, this so it says this uh, proposal defines a convention for writing a new form of sample called, code called snippets. Uh, they're short single file examples that can build and run from within a Swift package with access to other code within that package. Uh, so. I think that in the example they were just writing like basically like you know like documentation just comment or you know triple line documentation above like a function but you can write some code and it has a couple keywords uh in the comments themselves but i think you could just pull it up and actually run that in kind of this it's almost like i guess the way that i was thinking of it and you correct me if i'm wrong is like it's like a playground within documentation basically so i'm not sure if i'm not sure if you are right or wrong the way okay. I conceptualized it, which might be right or wrong, I have no clue, um, is that the oh. compiler can verify what you write uh, and make sure it doesn't get out of date. That's that's what I understood this as okay. it being. I don't know if you can actually run them um, or would, if it would make sense to run them uh, at yeah. all. Okay. I mean, maybe you can just to verify that the code you're writing for your documentation makes sense. Because just because it compiles does not mean it makes sense. Uh, uh-huh. So there's always that. Um, yeah, I guess there are print statements. So maybe those print statements do run. Oh, yeah. Maybe you're right. I don't know. Cool regardless. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Title of the episode, Cool Regardless. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> um, so yeah, it says here that it requires uh, an enable experimental snippet support feature flag uh, to actually turn it on uh, in the Doxy plugin. Uh, so uh, it's not part of Swift per se, but it's part of this like ancillary, ancillary uh, ecosystem of Swift. Um, and mm-hmm. I think it's really neat that there's more of this because we should all be writing more documentation and this makes it easier to write more documentation. Uh, documentation is like generics. It's like so complicated. No one wants to deal with it. Therefore, no one does it. Um, and no one understands how to do it well uh, because there's no practice like doing it, right? And then I think the last one that we have is uh, opaque result types with limited availability. Um, Fascinating. So is this just marking something with like add available? Like in uh, some opaque type or? Yeah, so it it basically allows you to change the value returned from a sum uh, based on the availability. So if Ooh. the availability says a new version of the OS has a new type, you can return that new type as long as it conforms to whatever protocol you're returning with sum, right? Um, mm-hmm. But if you're on an older version of the OS, you can return a different type. Now, this this is a bit confusing to me because it basically breaks that guarantee that's at uh, compile time that um, we want to make sure that the types are well-defined, which means that the compiler can optimize that type baked in directly, right? But if we have availability marks, then this result becomes dynamic, then it might not be as clear how to bake it in because now there could be two different types, right? Um, Thinking back to an array of structs, if you have a struct that takes up two bytes of memory versus a struct that takes up 10 bytes of memory, uh, Mm -hmm. you're going to have a very different array at the end of the day, depending on how it's packed, um, as we mentioned. Um, So that that is something that the compiler usually would have taken care of for you. Now, with these uh, availability checks, which are runtime checks, I'm not too sure how this all works together. Um, It might just be that the compiler will kind of bring the add availability up a level um so that way at the call site that availability actually now gets used uh directly to switch between two different implementations uh and maybe that's how it deals with it maybe it just boxes things and this is boxing things unnecessarily without you necessarily knowing that it's happening um so i'm not i'm not sure if some is the right way to go about that, but it really depends on the implementation if the compiler can guarantee things or not. If it can, then uh, some is the right uh, keyword to use. If it can't, I think maybe any should be the right keyword. That said, we are past the review period for... um, Actually, no, it's it's still an active review. So if you have thoughts, uh, I'm sure much smarter people have mentioned the things I have mentioned and whether they are important or not. Uh, So I guess check those um reviews uh review like posts in the swift forums mm. for more on that but yeah the, the, those are my quick uh thoughts on that proposal so this week's episode of code completion is brought to you by hungry hungry that's hungry with three u's is the ipad iphone and apple watch app you turn to when you really want to eat but are blinded by the multitude of choices available to you and your insatiable hunger 
Hungry isn't just here to help you discover new restaurants or flavors, no. It has a much more humble purpose. You tell it all about your favorite restaurants and it will deploy its cryptographically advanced random number generator invoked by shaking your phone in frustration to make the decision of what to eat for you. Stuck at home in quarantine and sick of ordering pizza? Use Hungry. Did Hungry just suggest pizza again? Don't fret, as other options for another cuisine, a cheaper restaurant, or even something closer um, are just a button away. Hungry also comes with a collection of fun animated iMessage stickers so you can share your hunger with others. Thanks again to Hungry for sponsoring our show. Search for Hungry, that's H-U-U-U-N-G-R-Y, on the App Store today to give it a try. So with all that um, out of the way, I want to personally thank everyone for listening in this week. Please be sure to follow us on Twitter at Code Completion to know when new episodes go live and feel free to tweet at us if there's ever a topic you'd like for us to dig into. Most importantly, as a small podcast, please be sure to share this with your friends and family who are also interested in any process of the of app development. It's your support that enables us to continue doing this, and we hope to grow a healthy community around everything we discuss. Once again, I want to give my thanks to Spencer, who is at Spencer C. Curtis. That's S-P-E-N-C-E-R-C-C-U-R-T-I-S on Twitter for joining me this week. My name, once again, is Dimitri. You can find me at Dimitri Bunyol. That's D-I-M-I-T-R-I-B-O-U-N-I-O-L. And we'll see you all next week. Bye. Bye. So I have a I have a short story to tell. Uh, and, Excellent. Uh, I am I am very sore as a result of my short story. So I will t- tell this in paces. Uh, but... Uh, at, at my home, uh, when we want to, whenever we want to go anywhere, we get in the car, we pull out our phone and we try to search for the place that we want to go to, to get directions to it. Just so that way we know if like roads are closed or anything, um, or we just have the map open, uh, things just stall because there is poor internet around like our driveway. Uh, so I wanted a way to like have better internet there. Additionally, mm-hmm. like when you pull out of a driveway, oftentimes if cars are parked on the road, you can't see anything uh, unless you're in like a super mondo uh, F1 cruiser or whatever they call those giant pickup trucks with like suspension and stuff. Uh, we do not have one of those. Uh, as you might <laughs> guess, we have a little tiny car uh, and a little tiny car uh, driving up to the street with those vehicles means you can't see anything no matter what. Uh, so uh, we wanted to put one of those uh, Logitech circle views i forget what they're called mm-hmm. yeah yep. we, we covered them anyways um we yep. wanted to put one on top of our garage so that way you can kind of see the street for us and then we can use uh the home app on our phones to kind of like get a little sneak peek um at what's uh coming at least so that way we can see past the car that's immediately there because otherwise we're just kind of sneaking in the blind and that's not uh ideal if someone's not paying attention on the road because they drive fast uh, so we wanted to have just uh, like an extra layer of uh, maybe it's safe. Um, not that uh, <laughs> yeah. we should rely on the camera because things can always be like latent and stuff like that. But it's better than nothing, um, which is the 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 bar that I was setting for this. Now that said, we have like zero Wi-Fi out in the driveway. Actually, we have just enough Wi-Fi to not be able to connect or not be able to actually connect to anything but it's like your wi-fi looks great um so it's not actually disconnecting us either um and that auto like shift to uh cellular does not work amazing uh so yes this is a this is a problem there now uh 
for Wi-Fi in my house, we use a bunch of airport extremes, which I have one right there. Um, and these have been made by Apple. They support Wi-Fi AC, which is, I think, called Wi-Fi 5 now. Mm-hmm. Um, things are changing rapidly. Um, but Apple has stopped making them, like, I think 10 years ago, like a long time ago. Um and uh, they continue to work just fine, but I only had so many, and I needed a new one. Uh, so I went to our good friend eBay, uh, and I, I like did the bidding process for the very first time. I'm like, okay, if there's an airport that someone's getting rid of, it's because they just replaced it with something else, not because it died, because these things yeah. don't die. Like The time capsules, they do die, but they're easy to take apart, and the part that dies is usually the fan that's at the bottom of it, and like, the, the grease kind of gets like ancient uh and then the fan does not spin anymore uh and that's how they quote unquote die so all you have to do is take it apart get a really long um hex uh screwdriver you can open it up get to that fan and you just put a bunch of motor grease um like dc motor grease not not engine motor grease uh inside of the little spindle and then you pop the little magnetic part back on and it spins perfectly and then you're like good to go uh so uh it's a very simple process of like repair time capsules and airport extremes are basically time capsules without the hard drive and therefore they right. don't really need that fan because there's like a whole bunch of open air now inside the closure so i was like more or less okay buying a used 10 year old airport extreme uh whenever these things came out um from ebay uh and i first was like oh like if i can buy four because there are like lots of four um and for like 40 bucks and why not so i I try that bidding process does not go well like i get outbid at the very last moment as as Uh is usual for ebay while i'm like working and not paying attention to ebay so yeah i quickly gave up on that uh and then just bought some random uh like not the first offer but like buy instant one um Uh for a a grand total of 40 bucks uh which sure i could have bought a brand new access point that's like Wi-Fi 6 and everything, but I don't think those are worth more than like 5 bucks more than the 40 bucks I paid, if that makes yeah. any sense. Like this was a much better deal without needing to upgrade everything. Um so I just got this, it arrived, it was like in mint condition except for the fact that it arrived open. Uh and this was because it was just wrapped in like the um, the bubbly like packaging that yeah. USPS has by default. Uh so it arrived with the bottom like popped out and i'm like how on earth did this bottom pop out so cleanly because it usually had to get like a spludger and everything so i was like kind of pleased that it popped out so cleanly and knowing what the internals of these things look like because i've repaired uh, a few time capsules uh before it looked pristine so i'm like whatever pop the thing back in uh i know how to pop it in no problem uh and it works fine uh so i had to update the firmware so it's been it's been a while since this thing was like plugged in and like maintained um it was a few point releases uh late and considering the last point release came out like two years ago uh yeah it's been a while um yeah. but uh i got that upgraded i got it connected to my network um and that was like uh step one because step two was getting it inside of my garage where it can actually uh connect everything so uh i first had to start uh with getting internet to the garage because i didn't want to do like a like wi-fi to wi-fi thing that always sucks Uh um and it's just gonna make everything else bad because it's gonna be like extending the same network that is currently pristine and works very well uh throughout my home except the driveway um 
Now, the I have cable, so we have a coaxial cable that's like coming in from the the utility pole in the back of the house. It runs all the way through into my garage and then via like a nice hole in the the eaves um and then it like drops in the garage um just like willy-nilly because the garage is a mess anyways uh and then it exits under the door of the garage uh and then goes into the door of our kitchen and then goes uh like painstakingly nailed along the bottom of the whole house Uh. to where the main uh router is so it's like this whole kind of rigmarole of like going back and forth because eventually I wanted to put everything in the garage, but I didn't do that yet. So this has been in this state for like three years. Um, and this was not ideal. Uh, and what I would now have to do is route an ethernet back to, along that same path under the kitchen door, under the garage yeah. door, into the garage, and then go into the roof of the garage to go all the way to the front where I would put that airport. Um, I don't know how heat is going to affect this whole thing in the future. So far, so good. So we'll see. Um, But considering I can always buy another one of these, they are plentiful on eBay uh, for not too much money. I'm not too, uh, like, worried about that. But um, uh, so I needed to get this Ethernet cable going through that thing. Uh, I wanted to maybe not use this route of like going under uh doors because that like always gets in the way of our kitchen door um and it's like a huge tripping hazard and stuff like this uh so i wanted to punch a hole like directly in the middle of the house where the router was and have this all run um underneath and that for the most part worked fine because there was already a hole from like past um conduit that was cut like it was not being used for anything so i ripped the conduit out um, I enlarged the hole with a drill bit. Um, and then we had a hole that like went all the way through. You can see the light and everything. So we put some nice caps on that. That works fine. Um, but we also wanted to go ahead and use the hole in the eaves that we made that the coax your cable was going through to put the ethernet cable. Mm-hmm. Fun stuff. Uh, coaxial cables are smaller than ethernet cables and we only made oh. the hole big enough for uh, coaxial cables. So, uh, ethernet cables would not fit, uh, at all. Um, like it would fit if we chopped it and then redid it. Uh-huh. I didn't want to chop it and yeah. redo it. Um, so, uh, we need to make that hole bigger. So I may or may not have ru- burned my power tool, like drilling through this much wood. Um, <laughs> uh, so it was a, it was a lot. I had to drill from like both ends multiple times trying to like get this going. My like arms and legs are super sore from all this. Uh, but I eventually did not give up. May have broken my power tool, uh, and uh, now now have a hole. Uh, so this hole goes all the way through. <laughs> so uh, we now have cables running along the outside of the house, and then they just go and kind of go up and mm. then through the eaves, and it's much nicer, less tripping hazard. Um, and now we have uh, the coax does no longer enters the garage, just drops down from the outside. That's fine, but the Ethernet now goes through. Um, goes along the roof of the garage and then right in the front I just basically zip tied um, the the airport to to the the structure of the house uh, and that is now there um, and it is happy there and it's probably never moving um, now that was part one of this part two was needing to put the little camera on the outside so I get up on the roof hmm. of uh, my house and I do not recommend ever going on the roof of your house uh, it is not safe, and many people have met their end uh, doing this. So uh, do not do it unless you uh, are prepared for that, I guess. I 
just no no easy answer yeah. to that uh roofs are dangerous uh but i go up on my roof um i like i'm walking very carefully because a steep roof with little grainy things easy to die um so I, I get up on there i get the the circle view i didn't want to make a hole right away so currently i'm lugging a bunch of extension cable to get the thing plugged in i tried using a little battery it didn't work so i was like fine uh, I will do this the extension cable way, and the extension cables are heavy. So I like lugged the extension cable up on the roof with the little circle thing. Um, I checked it on my phone, uh, and I'm like trying to like angle it to see like is it better here, is it better down here. Um, we find a place, uh, and it comes time to need to like drill a hole back into the garage to have the cable going. Now you don't want to just drill a hole down uh, because water, uh, water bad. Um, so I want to drill a hole uh through through the wood but i want to do it like at a slight up up angle so that way water goes outside not inside um right uh i failed miserably because the first thing i hit was like giant beam um and giant beam be giant <laughs> uh so i made one hole it was a poor hole um however uh lynn who was in the garage was like i see something so you're just go lower so i went lower also hit the beam, but just made enough room underneath the beam. <laughs> so I like readjusted, went the wrong direction. Anyways, I was like enough holes. Let's just reuse this one. So it's going the wrong direction. Whatever. Uh, get the USB cable inside because the camera is rated for outdoor, but the power is not. So get the USB cable inside. Get that all plugged in. Seems to work fine. So excellent. Now it's time to repatch up the holes. So I get a bunch of caulking. Uh, and uh, cock all that as best as I can. So, <laughs> so there's now two white holes on this like wood finish uh, that nice. we had. So it's like uh, wonderfully uh, hand put together, um, but maybe waterproof. I don't know. <laughs> so that's that's my adventure trying to get a camera uh, to see our street and enough internet to be able to use the camera from the car next to the street. So I'm tired. So did it work? Yeah, it does work. Nice. Okay. Yeah. Well, that would be the icing on the cake if it didn't if actually it didn't solve the problem. You're like, all of that work done for so, nothing. So there is one problem. The camera is slightly tilted. <laughs> I do not have oh. the energy or the will to go back on the roof to just slightly twist the camera. So I'm uh-huh. going to have to live with a camera that's slightly tilted uh, because that is, that is uh, the result of my endeavors. You'll just have to be slightly tilted every time you see the slightly tilted camera. Exactly. Except it's a rectangle and the rectangle is like the horizon's like this. So there's no fixing that. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, that's my adventure buying a used Airport Extreme because I refuse to buy uh, new access points that are not amazingly better. Like if I'm going to buy an access point, I want it to have like 10 gigabit Ethernet on one end. Mm-hmm. Or, like, something better than 1 gigabit. Because Wi-Fi is technically faster than 1 gigabit now. Yeah. Um, so, it's like, why have... Oh, our our routers support Wi-Fi 6E. Except the, the uplink to the, to the switch or whatever is a 1 gigabit connection. It's like, no. It needs to be higher than 1 gigabit. Because you can do more than 1 gigabit on your thing. Otherwise, you're lying and, like, wrong. Um, so, yeah. That, that's what I'm, yeah. like, really waiting for. Yeah, no, I we were talking about this a little and like I have, you know, a Wi-Fi 6E router or whatever. And it's like my internet speed is like worse than Dimitri's and I have technically better internet than him. So, uh, 
the airport extreme i'm sure is just just fine for you know everything that you're doing and i got me looking at trying to put 10 gig into my local network and everything and you know like you said it like it's going to require at least a 10 gigabit switch i have two switches technically so like there's two and then you know in between that is my router so i'd have to get like a 10 gigabit router too it's like oh so uh i'm looking into it but it's it it's expensive it's still not quite at the point where it's like you know gigabit stuff is dirt cheap now um mm -hmm. Not quite at that point, so I'm debating yeah, on whether I think six hundred dollars here, six hundred dollars there quickly adds up when you need seven of these things. Yeah, yeah, it's it's bad. So maybe I don't know, five years or so, four or three, it'll get a little bit more um, feasible. But right now but, I'm like, yeah. But then we'll have forty gigabit, <laughs> and then you'll I want know, forty, dude. It's the I worst. Know. I know, and I was telling Dimitri, like, the only time that I really even saturate a full gigabit is, like, when I'm transferring files from my MacBook to my NAS for code completion files when we're done. And it's, like, it's a once-a-week occurrence, but I'm still, like, it'd be really nice. It'd be really nice to have it done 10 times faster, so. Yeah. Well, think of it this way. If we have 100 gigabit networks, like, in our homes, you don't have to have a laptop with a ton of storage yeah. because you can work directly off of that external storage no matter where it is. Um, and that's, that's where I think networking is really going to um, like f be very usable is when we do get these faster speeds, we'll be able to not necessarily need to have a huge SSD in our portable devices. Um, and uh -huh. we can then take advantage of a larger SSD that everything can share. Um, yeah. So yeah, that future exists now. It's just through fiber, um, and uh -huh. no one knows what they're doing with that. So uh, <laughs> that's that's a, a whole other uh, thing fraught with uh, dragons. Anyways, bye, everyone. See ya.